Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, that, that, was, that was wonderful, Father Thomas Joseph, but it really was an exemplification of Father Thomas Joseph's gifts of um, bringing other people forward and, and, um, and then, um, you know, just, just kind of the joy of being, being a theologian and the joy of, um, you know, following Christ and, and seeking um, to contemplate these uh, mysteries. Now, now, if I if I known that Father Thomas Joseph was going to uh, honor me in this way, that I would have I would have um, I couldn't have given this paper because it, it's just too it's too um, poor a paper. Um, so now now I don't know what to do, <laughs> but um, I'm going to have to give three warnings. Um, now uh, this paper, the topic, the topic is Aquinas sacramental representation and the liturgical East, the common doctrine of liturgical theology. But um, the warnings are, um, number, the first one, for those who are liturgical, more traditionalists, I should mention that, that I attend uh, normally um, St. Joe's Parish, in which very few people under 60 know even what Eucharistic sacrifice uh, means. And, and the second warning is that for those who wish that liturgical controversy would just simply go away in favor of the status quo, I'm going to suggest that mass versus populum is not the right direction. And then the third warning is that for those who wish to discuss Aquinas, this essay is currently 63 pages. And I'm going to have to focus not on the section on Aquinas, but instead on clearing the ground. So gosh, I, I, do, really, I do wish this was better to um, fit the introduction, but, but this, is, this, is the true, this is the true me. And the introduction um, was a very wonderful uh, reflection of friendship. Okay, so the present essay proceeds in three steps, which can be quickly summarized as follows. First, the background to Church's decision in 1964 to promote versus popular mass, focusing on the positive and constructive rationale of those who prepared the way for this decision, and also critically engaging with the arguments of some of those who support it today. Second, a proposal to turn today to Aquinas's um, Eucharistic and liturgical theology in light of critics of the shift to versus popular mass and with attention to the fact that Aquinas was the common doctor of the Eucharist during the period of the liturgical movement. And lastly, third, an overview of Aquinas's theology of the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice and also his theology of the virtue of religion, sacrifice, and Christ's cross, an overview whose implied argument is that there are notable theological liturgical reasons for rejecting the universal shift to mass versus populum. Now let me explain these steps in just a bit more detail before proceeding to the meat of the essay. 
The first section or step will provide background to the issue of the direction of liturgical prayer in the Catholic Church. After beginning with Pope John Paul II's explicit recognition in his 2003 encyclical, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, that Catholic understanding of the Eucharist as a sacrifice has diminished sharply since Vatican II, I reflect upon the preconciliar discussion and practice, the preconciliar discussion and practice of the celebration of Mass versus Populum. I emphasize that those who promoted this liturgical reform generally did so with, without any intention to undermine the Eucharist status as a sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice. In this first section, I will draw upon Neil Xavier O'Donohue's recent short book, Liturgical Orientation, The Position of the President at the Eucharist, among other sources. Since O'Donovan supports the shift to versus populum, even while being highly well-read in and somewhat sympathetic to the arguments of those who take the opposite view. I note that one may, and in my view should, support other reforms promoted and implemented um, by the liturgical movement and by the Second Vatican Council without necessarily supporting versus populum. The second section, then, will attend to Archbishop Augustine de Noia's recent call for a Thomistic mystagogy of the liturgy. De Noia argues that the so-called traditionalists have missed the mark regarding the liturgical reforms that flowed from Vatican II and its constitution on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. In de Noia's view, the traditionalists who have criticized these reforms have generally not shown enough appreciation for the liturgical movement's groundedness in the Catholic tradition. In response to the traditionalists, as well as to those defenders of the liturgical reforms who have portrayed the reforms simply as a giornamento, de Noia challenges to mystic theologians to probe more deeply from a perspective attuned to sacred doctrina to pray more deeply into sacra liturgia. Now to Denoia's proposal, I add the claim that Aquinas can rightly be considered the common doctor of Eucharistic theology, including core liturgical elements during the period of the liturgical movement, at least with respect to the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice. Now this is so even among liturgical movement authors who do not cite Aquinas given that they regularly cite the Council of Trent, as well as encyclicals such as Pope Pius XII's Mediator Dei. And these texts bear the strong imprint of Aquinas' Eucharistic theology. In this section, the second section, I also discuss the perspective of some non-Thomistic critics of the celebration of Mass versus Populum, including Louis Bouillet and Joseph Ratzinger. I also show that some recent proponents of versus Populum have correlated the post-conciliar universal shift to mass versus populum with the precipitous decline in the laity's and clergy's appreciation for the Eucharist as the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice. According to these proponents, and I'm thinking of um, you know, people like Terence Tilley or, or Robert Schreiter, versus populum tends to highlight the Eucharist's status as a sacred meal to the detriment of the Eucharistic sacrifice something they support. They support the um, emphasis on the meal. I think these post-conciliar proponents of Versum Populum are correct about its consequences, which result from a significant change in the Eucharistic liturgy's sacramental representation. Okay, now the third and final section will retrieve Aquinas' Eucharistic and liturgical theology 
implicitly in light of the celebration of Mass versus Populum. Aquinas, of course, simply assumed that the priest will face the altar during the Eucharistic prayer. Although Aquinas, therefore, does not thematize this issue of, of versus Populum, I argue it, that his understanding of the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrificial cross provides a strong foundation for the fittingness of the priest acting in persona Christi facing the altar during the sacramental sacrificial offering of Christ's body and blood to the Father. I explore Aquinas' understanding of Christ's saving sacrifice, the virtue of sacrifice in the Secunda parts, and the rite of the Eucharist as joining us sacramentally to the offering of Christ's one salvific sacrifice. Through the Eucharistic liturgy, we receive the extraordinary dignity of being joined to the offering of Christ in supreme love for the redemption of the world. Okay, so um, now, now the section, the um, first section, um, the Eucharistic sacrifice and versus populum. Now the, um, the unfortunate thing is I'm really not gonna get past this first section. Um, and I, and I, wrote the, I wrote the paper on Aquinas and then I had, I had it with the, um, I began with Archbishop Genoia but you know, it just didn't seem quite right. Somehow, it seemed like it was more, um, almost more um, polemical. You know, anytime you wait into liturgical waters, where I'm just trying to be a theologian, but if you wait into liturgical waters, before you know it, um, there's all sorts of explosions and, and um, you know, the kind of things you see in movies or whatever. And, and so I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So I, um, this, 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 um, this section is really ground clearing um, but it's it's uh, an important section. But um, the and I trusted also that that many of you will have read the key um, text in Aquinas, where he is talking about um, sacramental re representation, the rite of the mass, uh, the virtue of, of religion, sacrifice, and so on. Okay, so this section in Ecclesia de Eucharistia, Pope John Paul II observes that in the Last Supper narrative of Luke 22. Quote, Jesus did not simply state that, that what he was giving them to eat and drink was his body and blood. He also expressed its sacrificial meaning and made sacramentally present his sacrifice, which would soon be offered on the cross for the salvation of all. The Mass, and then, and then he, um, John Paul II concludes, the Mass makes present the sacrifice of the cross, end quote. This language fits with the Tridentine teaching and indicates its grounding not only in tradition, but also in scripture. Pope John Paul II aims to defend vigorously the church's dogmatic teaching about the Eucharistic liturgy as a sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice. In the Eucharistic liturgy, the church is, quote, called to offer herself in union with the sacrifice of Christ, end quote. And indeed, there could hardly be anything so wonderful or crucial as being drawn into union with Christ's supreme sacrifice, his glorious cross, in this sacramental way. It's the greatest liturgical treasure of the Catholic Church. However, Pope John Paul II states that the Eucharistic liturgy is frequently misunderstood today, he, he says. He remarks, quote, at times one encounters an extremely reductive understanding of the Eucharistic mystery. Stripped of its sacrificial meaning, it is celebrated as if it were simply a fraternal banquet, end quote. And this is easily verified at local parishes, including, my, including certainly my own. The question is why it is so. Although John Paul II does not address this question, 
other than uh, make catechetical efforts to re uh, resolve it. The post-conciliar priest's liturgical action, understood as part of the sacramental sig signification, seems to fit more clearly with Christ gathering his people for a sacred meal, at least from the perspective of regular people like myself in the pew, who see the priest stretching out the consecrated body and blood toward the people, the priest no longer seems to offer the consecrated body and blood of Christ to the Father, but rather seems to offer the sacred elements to the people as food and drink, signifying a meal. Now, the above claims are controverted, to say the least. Since 1964, and with increasing firmness, at least in the editions of the general instruction of the Roman Missal, the church has promoted and then essentially required that the priest celebrate mass versus populum, that is facing the people rather than the altar during the Eucharistic prayer. In the 2000 general instruction of the third edition of the Roman Missal, which, which I have to admit, I'm just beginning this research. I'd never even have read this at all. Um, I'm quoting it here from some, someone else. I shouldn't admit that I'm not, I've never read something that I, I'm trying to quote. Uh, this is terrible. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, anyway, number, number 299 states that, quote, the altar should be built separate from the walls in such a way that it is possible to walk around it easily and that the mass can be celebrated at it facing the people, which is desirable, desirable whenever possible, end quote. Although Vatican II's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, does not mention celebrating mass versus populum, a number of preparatory drafts of the document do mention it in connection with, quote, the shape and construction of altars mentioned in the eventual paragraph 28 of Sacrosanctum Concilium. Moreover, the instruction inter ecumenici published during the council, September 26, 1964, specifically mentions and promotes versus populum. Quote, it is better for the main altar to be constructed away from the wall so that one can easily walk around this altar and celebrate facing the people, end quote. Neil Xavier O'Donohue notes that this reform has been and continues to be a popular one. In Catholic parishes today, there is no general groundswell of parishioners, at least certainly in my own parish, no general groundswell of parishioners protesting against mass versus populum. O'Donohue correctly states that, quote, the adoption of the versus populum orientation during the Eucharistic prayer has been one of the most significant elements of the liturgical renewal following Vatican II. It has been virtually universal in its adoption, and this adoption, though perhaps not accompanied by enough meaningful catechesis, has been welcomed by a great majority of Catholics in the pews, end quote. The key benefit, O'Donohue argues, has been that lay Catholics can now actually see what the priest is doing at the altar during the Eucharistic prayer. O'Donohue discusses the criticisms of Versus Populum at length, including the work of Louis Bouillet, Joseph Ratzinger, and Cardinal Robert Seurat. In addition, he mentions the teachings of Cardinal Jorge Arturo Medina Estevez, who as prefect of the Congregation of Divine Worship signed in September 2000 a response to a question from Cardinal Christoph Schoenborn as to whether the celebration of Mass at Orientum, that is, with the priests and people facing the altar during the Eucharistic prayer, liturgical east, whether or not the apse is positioned eastward, is now undesirable. 
The prefect's response to this question affirms that, quote, the position towards the assembly seems more convenient or fitting inasmuch as it makes communication easier, end quote. Thus, the Congregation of Divine Worship at the height of John Paul II's pontificate continued to support the near-universal shift to mass versus populum on the grounds that, quote, the communication between priests and people is thereby enhanced. At the same time, the prefect also insisted that, quote, whatever may be the position of the celebrating priest, it is clear that the Eucharistic sacrifice is offered to the one and triune God and that the principal, eternal, and high priest is Jesus Christ who acts through the ministry of the priest who visibly presides as his instrument, end quote. But to my mind, however, this is precisely what is not clear, at least not to regular people like myself in the pew. In the Mass versus Populum, the priest's offering of the consecrated body and blood appears to be oriented toward the con congregation in its, in in sort of unless you know better catechetically, in its sign character, its basic sign character, it looks much more like one of Jesus' feeding miracles or else like, like what one might imagine to have been the case at the Last Supper with Jesus offering his sacred food and drink to his disciples. Put simply, it looks much more like a meal than like Christ offering his salvific sacrifice to the Father. Now the prefect continues, quote, the physical position, especially with respect to the communication among the various members of, of the assembly, must be distinguished from the interior spiritual orientation of all, end quote. But since the, quote, I'm going to respond to that, since the physical position pertains to sacramental representation, and since the embodied signification of this physical position impacts the participant's interior perspective, I disagree that the physical position of the priest is so easily separable from the congregation's mode of interior participation in the Eucharistic sacrifice. Indeed, as though addressing my own concerns, the prefect then specifies, quote, it would be a grave error, he says, to imagine that the principal orientation of the sacrificial action is toward the community. If the priest celebrates versus populum, his spiritual attitude ought always to be versus deum, per Jesum Christum, end quote. But here it seems to be admitted, I think, that what actually appears in the sacramental representation, namely the priest facing the people, is the opposite of what the priest's sacramental action is supposed to represent, since the priest interiorly should be focused not on the people, and, and not, not, not only the priest, but the priest and people interiorly should be focused on offering the sacrifice in, um, I got this wrong. Okay, since the priest's interior should be focused not on the people, but on offering the sacrifice in presenta Christi to God. The prefect remarks further, quote, the church as well, which takes concrete form in the assembly which participates, is entirely turned versus deum, towards God, as its first spiritual movement, end quote. I agree that this may be so, but in a mass versus populum, the fact is, and I say this from just a, as a, um, an essentially liturgically uneducated uh, person in the pew, the fact is that the priest faces the people and the people face the priest. Interiorly, the people may be turned toward God, but the embodied experience and the embodied signification of the people in the Eucharistic liturgy consists in facing the priest. 
This is quite different embodied experience from facing the altar in union with a priest as the priest offers the elements, the sacred elements, in the direction of the altar and in the liturgical direction of God the Father. Now, Adonahue is quite aware of concerns such as the ones I've expressed, perhaps clumsily, above. But he thinks them to be mistaken. In his view, quote, the full and active participation, end quote, of the people in the Eucharistic liturgy is greatly enhanced by the priest facing the people during the Eucharistic prayer. Whereas I have suggested that the congregation's interior active participation is weakened due to the fact that the sacramental representation no longer that is, when the priest faces the people, clearly expresses what is actually happening in the Eucharistic sacrifice. O'Donohue grants simply that there have been some abuses and that there are some risks associated with versus populum, most notably that the priest may place himself at the center of attention. O'Donohue rejects, however, the notion that mass versus populum should be changed, in part because it would adversely affect the ongoing reception of Vatican II. As indicated above, he emphasizes that a large majority of priests and people after Vatican II favored and still favor the new mode of celebration. Adonahue goes on quite fairly to point out that the preconciliar mass was hardly free of abuses or, for that matter, wondrously effective in ensuring interior active participation in the Eucharistic sacrifice. He notes that in the decades after the council, quote, most people agreed that when taken as a whole, the reform of the liturgy was a positive development in the spiritual lives of Catholics, end quote. Adonahue's most important arguments in opposition to the celebration of the Eucharistic liturgy at Orientum, by which I simply mean liturgical East, are twofold. First, he thinks it's suitable for the priests and people to face each other as a sign of the human communion, the human love that Christ's new commandment requires. After all, we cannot love God if we do not love our brothers and sisters, and Versus Populum highlights the communion and love of priests and people in the Eucharistic sacrifice. Second, he argues that the Eucharistic liturgy versus Populum allows for the fullness of the Eucharistic signs to be perceived by the congregation. Indebted to Dom Gregory Dix, the shape of the liturgy, he envisions early Christian liturgies as containing four primary signifying aspects the offertory, the Eucharistic prayer over the bread and wine, the breaking of the bread, and the communion of both kinds. Celebrating the Eucharist versus populum ensures that the people see and hear all these aspects, thereby sharing fully in the key signs or shape of the Eucharistic liturgy. Along these lines, O'Donohue reasons, quote, if the Eucharist is a sign that instructs then perhaps the best way for it to instruct is if the assembly can actually see the ministerial actions of Christ that the presider is performing, end quote. He suggests that this fits with Sacrotechnum Concilium, paragraph 21, which commands that, quote, both texts and rites should be drawn up so that they express more clearly the holy things which they signify, end quote. On this view, the best way that the sacramental representation can enable us to share in Christ's sacrifice on the cross is by enabling us to see the things the priest is doing when he performs, quote, the symbolic actions of Jesus at the Last Supper, end quote. In sum, Adonahue holds that the active participation in the Eucharistic sacrifice is aided by being able to see the priest's actions in persona Christi much more than it was by seeing the priest facing the altar. 
And for Donahue, it's the value of seeing the priest's actions that explains why most Catholics today do not want the priest to face the altar during the Eucharistic prayer. He points out that even when Pope Benedict XVI opened up the extraordinary form as an option, more than 99% of the liturgies continue to be celebrated versus populum in the Novus Ordo. O'Donoghue recognizes that for various reasons, some priests today may prefer to face the altar during the Eucharistic prayer, but in his view, such priests should not impose their preference upon the people since priests are to serve the spiritual good of the people. Regarding the issue of liturgical ease, where the priest, again, I've talked about that, O'Donoghue adds a further proposal, and this is, this is important. Quote, would it not be possible to consider that when a Eucharist is celebrated in a dignified way, both the priests and people face liturgical east, even when they celebrate facing the, each other across the altar on which the bread and wine are placed and prayed over. According to his, this proposal, which I find um, quite important, priests and people can face liturgical east even when they face each other. Liturgical east, again, means as, uh, you know, uh, facing, um, facing together toward, toward God in the offering. They can do so, he suggests, when they interiorly, quote, face Christ and through their participation in the sacred mysteries proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, end quote. The idea here is that if the altar need not actually face east, you know, um, the apse if, and so on, in order to face liturgical east, then neither do the priests and people need to face the altar together in order to face the eschatological coming, Jesus Christ. Although I admire his ingenuity, I do not agree with these arguments. The first and most significant re reason for my um, disagreement, at least so far, maybe I may understand them better later, um, has to do with what is most important in the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice. In my view, it's clear that the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice, in the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice, the most important element is the priest offering the consecrated body and blood while facing the altar, that is, while visibly functioning in a sacrificial mode. This is much more important than is the priest showing the people what he is doing with the bread and cup at the consecration. When the people should, what, what the people should see in order to stimulate active participation in the Eucharistic sacrifice is an offering being made to God and thus being offered in the direction of the altar. In such a case, what the people see looks like the priest offering something to God. That's what it looks like, the signification. By contrast, when the priest faces the people, what the people see looks like the priest offering them bread and wine. The latter has far more the aspect of a meal, even if the priest tries to explain that he's offering the consecrated elements to God. Put simply, the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice um, needs to look as much as possible like a sacrificial offering to God. Otherwise, the representation will, in fact, signify a meal much more than a sacrifice. Now, the communion rite that completes the Eucharistic sacrifice confirms that sacrifice and meal are inseparable. So it's not a competition between sacrifice and meal here at all. There's no need, to, therefore, to turn the offering of Christ's body and blood into a further sign of the meal. After all, a central element of the greatness of the Eucharist, the glory of the Eucharist, 
resides in the fact that it is a real sacramental making present of Christ's saving cross so that the church is sacramentally united to his salvific offering. As the Anglican theologian Eric Maskell pointed out in a book originally published in 1953 in a chapter devoted to, quote, the Eucharistic theology of St. Thomas, end quote, he points out this. He says, quote, a balanced discussion of the Eucharist must start from the sacrifice, end quote. Now, a second concern that I have with O'Donohue's position is related to the first, namely, in his effort to secure the sacramental re representation of Christ's sacrifice, O'Donohue stretches the notion of liturgical East past the breaking point. It is one thing to say that when priests and people face the altar during the Eucharistic prayer, they are facing liturgical East even if the apse is not oriented eastward. But it's quite another thing to say, as O'Donohue does, that the priests and people can be together facing liturgical East even when they are facing each other. In his view, they are facing liturgical East insofar as they are interiorly facing Christ and are praying, therefore, interiorly together toward Christ. But this is a strangely disembodied uh, picture of sacramental worship. The point is that the sacram sacramental representation is and must be an embodied one. Exterior acts are intended to signify interior acts. So the exterior posture of the priest facing the people does not signify facing Christ, even if interiorly that's precisely what the priest is doing, because the priest in persona Christi faces the people. That, that's a key thing. So Adonahue proposes that facing each other is like facing Christ, since to love God requires loving our neighbor. But this claim confuses the issue, I think. In the Eucharistic liturgy, the, if the priest and people are facing each other during the Eucharistic prayer, then the priest does not well represent Christ's sacrificial offering of himself to the Father. The people will be less likely to understand what the Eucharist is, namely a sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice. Third, a third thing, as noted above, O'Donohue explains how important it is that the people see and hear the priest performing Jesus' actions at the Last Supper. But in fact, Jesus' actions and words at the Last Supper are fairly simple. Quote, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, end quote. Because of the use of microphones, believers can hear the words, even if the priest is facing the altar. And it's easy enough to imagine Jesus taking bread into his hands and offering it. The much more difficult thing for a congregation is to make any connection at all to the sacramental representation of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. In fact, Keep, I think it's important to keep in mind that Protestant believers have long seen and heard what the pastor of the Lord's table is doing and saying without making even the slightest connection to any Eucharistic sacrifice. Okay, so the point again is that when the priest during the Eucharistic prayer faces the altar, it becomes much clearer that the assembled congregation is participating in a sacrificial offering. And it becomes much clearer that the sacrifice in which the people are participating is Jesus' own in accordance with Jesus' words and deeds of the Last Supper and the priest's role in Persona Christi. Besides, the priest's offering of the consecrated body and blood should mean that the whole congregation can see the most important thing that the priest is doing, even when the priest is, faces the altar, because the priest raises them up, raises up the consecrated elements. 
In short, the rationale of the versus populum is more appropriate for the sacramental representation because the people can see and hear what the priest is doing is not persuasive. Now, okay, this has all sounded rather controversial so far, but I am not suggesting at all that the church's motives for adopting versus populum were bad. On the contrary, and this is, this is a, a second section of my, of my talk here of this, uh, but this is really the key thing. I'm, I'm now going to enter into sort of the key stage where I'm going to enter into the liturgical movement much more deeply, and I'm going to ally myself with the liturgical movement. That's the key thing is that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I, I affirm the liturgical movement and I'm, I'm definitely allied with the liturgical movement. So um, Versus Populum was part of a concerted effort to overcome the perceived fact, which I assume was completely true, that many laity were not participating well in the mass. The American magazine Newsweek, back when it was important, commented in 1939, in 1939, I included this little comment that at most Catholic masses, quote, the priest recites the Latin ritual and altar boys respond on the congregation's behalf. The layman in his pew is a mute and silent spectator, end quote. That's 1939. I have no reason to doubt this. Indeed, Pope Pius XI himself is the source of the interior quote about the congregation as a mute and silent spectator. The liturgical movement sought to involve the congregation in a variety of ways, one of which was the shift to versus populum. Now, I support most or almost all of the ways in which the liturgical movement sought to involve the congregation. I'm demurring simply regarding versus populum. Let me provide some further background. In its 1939 article, Newsweek describes the ninth annual edition of the Sodality of Our Ladies Summer School of Catholic Action. Under the leadership of the well-known American Jesuit Daniel A. Lord, the purpose of the summer school was to help young people learn how to form local Catholic action clubs. During the summer school, the young people attended a, quote, dialogue mass, or misa recitata, each morning. Newsweek explains, quote, invented 30 years ago by two Belgian priests and now obligatory in all Belgian religious houses, the Dialogue Mass gives the congregation an, an active role, aloud and in unison. They recite their responses usually reserved for altar boys." End quote. Newsweek doesn't mention whether these Dialogue Masses were versus populum, but among the liturgical briefs of a 1939 issue of the influential liturgical journal Arate Fratris, we find the following report, quote, at noon daily throughout Lent, a Misa Recitata was offered in St. Joseph's, the Jesuit Father's Church. St. Louis at an altar facing the people. The large congregations who came to take an active part in the offering of the sacrifice testified to the reaction of the people. This mass here explicitly includes the element of versus populum, but of course it had other popular elements of the dialogue mass as well. Orate Fratris in 1939 also published a relatively lengthy essay on quote, progress of the dialogue mass in Chicago. This essay, written by the Jesuit Gerald Allard, cites a short Newsweek report about the Catholic Action Masses. Allard describes his own experience of the Dialogue Mass at Chicago's Mundelein Seminary, where all the Masses took this form, without being versus populum or in the vernacular. At this time, Reynold Hildebrand, a strong advocate of the liturgical movement, was the young rector of Mundelein Seminary. As he says in his essay, L. Ard came up with the idea of having, quote, something like a dialogue mass census, 
taken by way of ascertaining to what extent this form of corporate mass worship may be spreading in Chicago, end quote. After a survey of Mundline Seminary, a large details the existence of dialogue masses, often in English, at many Chicago parishes. Alar goes on to describe a youth day uh, at a 1938 Canadian Eucharistic Congress that involved 75,000 young people partaking in a dialogue mass. Describing another large dialogue mass, Alard quotes a participant, Gordon Curzon of DePaul University, as saying, quote, intensive cooperation with the priests at Holy Mass will make our lives part of a worldwide sacrifice which is wholly immolated to God. This beautiful spiritual enthusiasm is understandable, and it doesn't necessarily entail a mass versus poplum, of course. It's still firmly grounded in the mass as the Eucharistic sacrifice, the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice. Elard envisions various, quote, stages on the road between the old mode of mute and silent spectatorship and the ultimate goal of a congregation chanting its high mass worship, end quote. He supports active participation, use of the vernacular, and the congregation's involvement in certain parts of the Mass that for centuries had been the province solely of the altar boys in the choir. And the element of versus problem is not, not present in the large report. One can see even if it were present, it would be caught up in a broader set of changes. Therefore, to challenge its, its value, the value of, of versus problem, is, is not to challenge the value of the liturgical reform per se. That's a complete misunderstanding, I think. Indeed, the many, liturgi many liturgical reforms had already begun and become a standard part of Catholic life by 1939. Elard later became well known for a series of books. I, I didn't know this, and I haven't read any of the books yet either, um, but he did, apparently did become well known. Um, I'd never heard of him. But he became well known for a series of books, and, uh, including the Dialogue Mass, 1942, The Mass of the Future, 1948, and The Mass in Transition, 1954. The rather unfortunately titled The Mass of the Future, I think Louis Boyer um, makes fun of it later, <laughs> contains a suggestion that the Mass might be renamed. Here's what Elard wants the Mass to be renamed. This is important. He wants it to be renamed The Eucharistic Sacrifice. And his book also promotes a number of reforms, such as further use of vernacular and communal hymns, priestly concelebration, and architectural changes that favor but do not mandate mass versus populum. While approving of mass versus populum, Elard insists upon organic development firmly, firmly rooted in Catholic liturgical tradition, and he clearly has not even the slightest inkling at all that the mass's status as a Eucharistic sacrifice will or should ever be challenged or undermined. In the responses section, now it's shifting a little bit, in the responses section of a 1961 issue of the influential liturgical journal Worship, one finds, more, finds out more about the Mass versus Populum. In addition to promoting the use of ambos and lecterns for scripture readings, the author of the responses, the well-known, then well-known theologian Frederick R. McManus, pays appreciative attention to masses facing the people. He notes that the current liturgical books have little to say about such masses. Of course, the liturgical books make clear that there are permissible instances of masses versus populum. But one problem is the fact that in most churches, the altar is built into the wall. McManus describes the priest ascending the steps up the altar and then at the far side of the altar, turning to face the people. 
Ideally, says McManus, quote, the altar for mass facing the people should stand free and nothing should be placed on its surface to obscure the priest from the people or vice versa. So McManus seeks to ensure that the altar cards, the stand for the missile, candlesticks, and the crucifix do not block the people's sight of the priest and his actions. He envisions the celebration of the mass versus populum as a restoration of an earlier usage, although more recent scholars have shown this is almost surely not the case. He also praises the flexibility that is possible in the mass versus populum, given the fact that the rite has not yet been set in stone by, by specific rubrics. This fact, he thinks, allows for evaluation of local circumstances and variations. Especially intriguing for me is the main reason, the key reason, that McManus gives for favoring, favoring mass versus populum. This is really important. The reason is, quote, quote, the recovery by the faithful of the concept of the community sacrifice, the sacrifice of the church in union with her head. End quote. Although Pope Pius XII had emphasized the participation of the congregation in the sacrifice offered by the priest, even though the priest acting in persona Christi remains the offer, McManus argues that, there, that more is needed. Namely, the Eucharistic sacrifice will better be understood as the church's sacramental sacrifice when it is offered versus populum. That's his key point. In short, precisely the centrality of the sacramental re representation of Christ's sacrifice leads McManus to favor versus populum. He holds that the union of the congregation with the priest is much more apparent when the priest faces the people. The important role of the people in the offering will then become more apparent to the people themselves. Now, in my view, McManus overlooked the fact that in 1961, and it's understandable that he overlooked this fact, in 1961, almost every Catholic who regularly participated in Mass already understood its sacrificial dimension, so much so that in popular writing, the, quote, Eucharistic sacrifice is mentioned generally without explanation. It was evident to all that the priest was offering the consecrated elements to God and thereby was sacramentally represent, representing the offering of Christ on the cross. What was not so evident, however, at the time, was the role of the congregation in this offering. Although their sharing in the liturgical action had been emphasized by Pope Pius XII and had been underscored by other liturgical reforms already. So McManus hoped that when the priests faced the people, the importance of the people's role in the sacrifice would become clear to them. But in, in, in making this claim, he did not take into account what the priest facing the people does to the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice, given that the sacramental action will seem, once that change is made, to the people more like being invited to share a meal. Now, McManus had similar hopes for what facing the people would do for the priest's own spiritual approach to the Mass. In his essay, although he recognizes that, quote, many priests look upon the prospect of Mass toward the people with misgivings, end quote, he deems that celebrating Mass versus populum will bring to the priest an exciting, exciting realization of his role as, quote, the representative of Christ in union, union with all the members, end quote. The priest will come to appreciate, quote, his position as president of the community at worship, the community, see, end quote. On this view, the priest will be better able to understand his intimate association with the congregation as his president and the rep representative of Christ, 
Rather than conceiving of the Mass as the priest's action, but, but in fact, I, I would suggest, once the meal signification was highlighted and the sacrificial signification was diminished, the priest did in fact become more of a mere presider than a sacramental represent, representative of Christ offering himself to God on the cross. Okay, so two things should be clear by now, <clears throat> I hope. First, the sincere and constructive hopes of the advocates of versus populum. They were not trying to destroy or undermine or, or any bad thing the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice. On the contrary, they were trying to include the congregation more firmly in Christ's, in the sacra sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Okay, the second point the fact that, is the fact that versus populum was always just one among a set of liturgical forms, almost all of which I myself would affirm. I accept there were indeed priests who, in thinking of the Eucharistic sacrifice as such, gave little thought to the congregation. To my mind, the dearth of congregational responses in hymns, the fact that these were allocated to the altar boys and choir, seems a serious mistake. No doubt there were laity who did not feel a strong connection to the Eucharistic sacrifice, which they thought to be the priest's task. And no doubt, these laities surely occupied themselves when they did attend Mass with private devotions rather than actively participating in the Eucharistic liturgy itself. What I'm, what I'm saying here is that I understand and appreciate why the liturgical movement sought, sought reforms. O'Donohue points out, too, in addition, that um, getting back to O'Donohue, that the two leaders of the liturgical movement who were most enthusiastic about celebrating Mass versus Populum, Pius Parsh and Romano Guardini, both were shaped by the horrors of World War I and its aftermath, and I think that should not be underestimated. As O'Donohue notes, Parsh had, Pius Parsh had served as a chaplain for Austria during World War I and had seen firsthand how alienated from Christian faith were many of the nominally Catholic soldiers. In the decades prior to World War I, Europe had, after all, ra rapidly secularized. Little wonder that when he returned to Austria after World War I, Parsh, as a pastor, focused on the liturgical movement, and in 1935 set up an altar capable of allowing the celebration of the liturgy versus populum. Likely influenced by Parsh, Guardini sought to popularize the mass versus populum at the parish level, and especially in youth ministry. Adonahue comments, quote, Guardini was particularly involved in the youth ministry of the Jugend, the Wigan, gosh, I, I, I shouldn't have, um, I can't speak German. I can't say even a German word. Jugen bewig, bewig, if, if, okay, thank you. I do apologize. I apologize for this. Which had started in the aftermath of World War I and which was trying to give meaning to young people and provide an alternative to the anti-Christian totalitarian movements in Germany that eventually gave birth to Nazism in World War II, end quote. Guardini's rather desperate romanticism expressed in flowery statements about the young generation's vocation and about the urgent need for the young generation to lead a spiritual renewal in authentic liturgical practice makes perfect sense in the heady context and deeply serious context of Germany in the 20s and early 30s. After the end of World War II, moreover, the future of European Catholicism looked profoundly bleak to anyone who had eyes to see. Existentialist Chartrian secularism, the rise of Marxism, communism, even communism in Europe itself, and the growing discovery of the serious sins of European colonialism 
contributed to a dire situation. In America, the church could be said to be flourishing, but the liturgical reforms pledged to make it even stronger. My point is that it's unsurprising that in this time period, the liturgical movement with its proposed reforms, including eventually versus populum, emerged ever more strongly. And in my view, almost all the reforms were good ones. Louis Bouillet, a leading figure of the liturgical movement and an advocate for many liturgical reforms, noted some concerns in 1954 regarding the dialogue masses. In his book, Liturgical Piety, he observes that in France, indebted to the example of Belgium and Germany, the liturgical movement had advanced in part through the, quote, milieu already prepared by Catholic action, especially the various Catholic youth movements, end quote. While the Belgian liturgical movement focused on parishes, the French liturgical movement focused on other pastoral settings, as, for example, the direct ministry engaged in by the worker priests. Boyer warns that the, this focus has sometimes, quote, led to some neglect of the traditional aspect of the liturgy, end quote. He describes the emergence of what he calls paraliturgies that began, quote, as a transitional device preparing the way for an understanding of the liturgy, end quote, but that had become in the eyes of some persons, quote, the liturgy of the future, which will more or less replace or refashion the official liturgy itself, end quote. Again, however, Boy himself in 1954 and onward was a strong advocate, and I think rightly so, of many reforms of the liturgy. Now, I'm drawing this thing to a close. Um, to be clear, I, I certainly do not think the mass versus populum should be forbidden in any way, nor, nor do I think it's uh, just some sort of, I'm not trying to be too negative. But this is a liturgical reform, I would, I would suggest, that has not worked out in the way that its proponents hoped. Most central to the Eucharist is our participation in Christ's cross by means of the sacramental representation of a saving sacrifice through the actions of the priest and persona Christi. This is the purpose of the Eucharistic sacrifice, and according to the Council of Trent, um, and I could say more, I, I need to say more here, but according to the Council of Trent, and in continuity of patristic and medieval developments. As I'll make even clear in the next section of the essay, which is never gonna be heard, the shift to a near universal celebration of the Mass versus Populum has obscured the sacramental representation of Christ's sacrifice. Believers in Mass now generally experience the symbolism as representative of a meal either the meal of the Last Supper, in which Jesus offers sacred food and drink to the people, or else one of Jesus' feeding miracles. Properly, however, the symbolism of the meal um, has, has a appropriate and beautiful place within the symbolism of the Eucharist as our sacramental sharing and Christ's offering of, on the cross. The main point is, and this is the final sentence, that I, I think I've run out of time anyway, um, the main point is the church movement never intended to overthrow this central truth about the Eucharistic sacrifice. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.